Welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Dr. Brad Evans, the philosopher, the political philosopher, the critical theorist and writer. He's actually my friend. I was once in a tea room in Harrogate with him. Is it Harrogate or Harrogate? You know, the one that's near Leeds in England. Brad is a brilliant man, a mentally dexterous individual. You'll notice, actually, in the interview that I don't really ask questions. I just unleash statements at him, like great glaciers. And he always goes sort of like, mm-hmm, or yeah, and then sort of comes back with their own little glacier of information. He's an expert on violence, but not just violence like as in a smack in the mouth. Violation, impediments of freedom. He's the author of 15 books, along with over 50 academic and media. 50 academic, along with 50 academic media articles. He's written more than that. Is that, did he send you this? Brad, 50, I don't know, over 50 articles. That seems like a, a, a low boast. He's, he's a brilliant writer, and I first encountered him when I was briefly doing a degree at SOAS in London. He's an extremely smart, quicksilvery, whippet-brained individual. He holds a chair in political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath. So listen, before we get into that, sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com to get information of the things that I'm not doing because we're all on a global lockdown. But also I do send, uh, if you're on that mailing list, I send content, you know, I do a little video of me reflecting on things. If you want to get in touch uh, on social media, you can at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, Russell Brand on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all those things. I've got some comments, you know, like we did a podcast with Gabon Matte. This is, this is, these are those comments. Live Simply Natural said... So true. We can focus on the dangers of this crisis or the opportunity. Nature is asking us to wake up and heal our bodies, minds and earth. That is, I think, the one optimistic strand that we found within our conversation with Dr. Mate. Doctors, that's who I talk to these days. Rashid Ogunlaru says, There's much beauty and one might say hope in this interview. Stroke discussion. Wonderful work, Russell. Thanks, mate. And Dr. Mate. Gabor's point about what if we stop the denial is one of those beautifully innocent penetrating truths a beautiful invitation meanwhile sending every best wish and well wish to one and all that's a nice message right that's a good use of social media well done powerful you said this is the greatest learning opportunity humanity has seen for a long time really enjoyed listening to this conversation thanks for uploading it i'm sure we're going to go through a lot of phases during this there's going to be despair rage you know it's not going to just be oh look there's less pollution you know there's going to be a lot of notes in this symphony brilliant interview says autism and parenting i love the comment buddhists say relax everything is out of control yeah that quote it was good wasn't it that mate well said great discussion all right well let's get into this interview with brad evans now it's another fantastic conversation it's another fantastic perspective on this peculiar global event at times i'm sure we'll be fatigued and fatigued and want to be distracted from it want to not think about it anymore and want to just i don't know watch episodes of fools and horses or cheers or something and but for now let's analyze the arse off it with dr brad evans trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. 
what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. Brad, welcome to Under the Skin. Brad Evans, great friend of the show, our most consistent guest, our most regular guest, uh, almost a, a sort of a brother, stroke cousin, nephew, uncle, grandfather, silver fox, George Clooney of philosophy, I've dubbed him. Thanks for joining us, Brad. We're already leaping into coronavirus. What were you saying there about the supermarkets and stuff, mate? Well, I think going to the supermarket yesterday, um, it's just a, it's a really surreal atmosphere because on the one hand, you kind of filter in between kind of the normal and the exceptional in the very the same moment. And you walk in, you know, walk into the supermarket, it seems kind of everything's nice and, you know, friendly and people are very courteous, actually, which is quite, you know, but there's a distance as well. And the thing that I found strange about the supermarket yesterday was just an eerie silence. There's a, it, yeah. It's just very difficult to kind of make sense of this kind of abnormality within the normal. And I, and I think that's very disrupting for a lot of people, I think. It's like, I suppose, it, many people will imagine as as this becomes the new normal, which, you know, adaptive species that we are within four, six, eight weeks will be adjusting to our new circumstances and our new rules, the accepting that we can't, you know, that there can't be physical contact. That It's so interesting to observe different customs. I was thinking today about the Japanese custom of bowing or the Indian prayer hands custom then it made me consider you know likely these forms of greeting are to extract the possibility of you know contagious contagious diseases but i uh, said so one of the things i was very interested in getting your take on is uh, crises of this nature are often opportunities to impose greater social restrictions but similarly they're an opportunity to bring about social change what, what are you observing so far Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're, the, the words you use, I think, are uh, striking, actually, the new normal, because I think we have to recognise this is going to be a new normal, that it's going to have a profound impact in ways that we certainly not anticipate or certainly can't understand fully yet. I think, you know, we do have to be uh, very mindful of history. And I think what one thing that we, we know historically um, is the way in which these kind of crises do have a fundamental reordering of the nature of politics. Now, I, I don't know, you know, without dwelling too much on the history, uh, you know, um, I do think it's worth pointing out that a lot of the big major changes in the history of the human condition have actually come in responses to pandemics. So if you look, for instance, at, um, first of all, you know, the, the Black Death, when that swept right across Europe, for many people, actually, that's the birth of anti-Semitism in Europe, because Jewish people were actually blamed for actually bringing the Black Death from the Far East. And there was a very famous massacre in 1349, which was called the Valentine's Massacre, which happened in France, which, which went through when 3,000 Jewish people were burned. Now, that in itself, of course, you know, the legacy of anti-Semitism from that point onwards. I do also think, you know, if we look at then the birth of the modern societies, you know, you, I know you talk, you know, mentioned biopolitics quite a bit in your recent post. Foucault argues that the birth of the modern state begins in response to the plague and how we need to understand and regulate and control human life. So I do think that, you know, having a rich appreciation, first of all, of the history of pandemics is something which will perhaps guide us better into the future. Now, in terms of where we go in from this, I think you're absolutely right. There's 
we're, we seem to be at a bit of a crossroads in our history and, and an appreciation in our history where we could kind of go in two different directions. The one is quite clearly a shift towards a certain creep in authoritarianism where these temporary security measures become permanent. And that's something we need to be very alert to. The alternative might be a much more enriched planetary awakening, an ethical awakening that makes us fully appreciative of those who are truly vulnerable in our societies. And I think if anything that this virus has done, it's made us all kind of feel a, a sense of a, maybe what we might call a mutually assured vulnerability. But also it's bringing into clear focus the people who are truly vulnerable in our societies. And there is that kind of saying, you know, the one thing that crises truly reveal is what's already broken in a society. And, yeah. and it brings this clearly into focus. And the one thing we are seeing today is, you know, these issues around food security, health, food insecurity, sorry, health insecurity, things which many people are living with on a daily basis and which we're all now kind of having to come to terms with. And if we can kind of harness that feeling, that sentimentality, that surely can be the start point for rethinking of a new kind of politics. What have you seen in the actions uh, and edicts of the governing that gives an indication of the sort of attitudes uh, to... to, Because I suppose when you say that Foucault thing about... Um, like, you know, like you could say that the relationship with the state begins with the pandemic. That sort of suggests that it's a kind of a reinforcement of the dynamic of the governed and the governing that we, you know, we require a sovereign when we are vulnerable. We're more likely to ascribe to a, a kind of to state control or submit rather to state control in, in times of vulnerability. What do you think about the sort of like the, res- the the response of various countries and what can we read, say, into, say, the response of Australia, the response of New Zealand, the response of our country and the response of America? Is there anything that you think is sort of a, a, a kind of, I don't know, a litmus test or barometer of certain attitudes towards power and the, and the people that they govern? Yeah, well, I think that the responses have been varied. I think if we were going to be critical Certainly, um, the US and the UK approach in particular was not so much just kind of putting the head in the sand, but trying to ensure as much as possible that business as usual. And, and it seems that the profit motive was oh, the overriding concern and the profit above people. That become very clear in the early responses to this crisis. And, you know, we don't want to start saying, well, there's a negligence there, but certainly more should have been done at the level of people instead of profits. Now, what could we have done differently? Well, I know there's been a lot of calls for people saying, well, just simply introduce a basic universal wage for people. So people don't have to worry about, you know, we often find monies when we need to reinforce the military or when we need to bail out the banks. But it's, you know, the numbers are insignificant when we think about actually just giving you know, everybody in the world a basic universal living wage, which would mitigate against all the economic concerns we we're currently having. Um, now, I know it's like certain countries like Denmark, for instance, have now come out and said they're going to pay 80% of people's wages right, during this crisis. Now, okay, this is great in time of crisis, but why not 
think about this beyond that. The, you know, nobody should have to live with these immediate conditions of vulnerability where a crisis like this can have so many people feeling so desperate in terms of, and we have no idea of the mental health, the lasting effects of the mental health issues concerning all of this, this kind of state of vulnerability that people are now in. So I think in terms of that response, that's clear. The, the other side of things in terms of then, you know, what I find particularly deeply troubling about the politicians' responses at the minute is this now complete fallback onto war metaphors, that we are now at war with an invisible enemy. And this narrative of war, to me, is very dangerous because, first of all, it normalizes militarism. It gives over to the exception can now become the rule. And in that sense, of course, you know, this idea that we're fighting some invisible killer, you know, this becomes something which really embeds down on security. And your point about then, okay, we need the sovereign state, you know. Okay, we can say, well, what is the purpose of security? Well, to protect its citizens, right? Um, but protecting citizens in this context surely has to be the protection of global citizens, not the protection of some nation's citizens over others. Um, but we have to go further than this, you know, because this idea now, that, and I think this is one of the things that's also becoming apparent to us in this time, is that this idea that politics begins with security is complete misnomer. Politics begins with our concern for our loved ones, for our families, for our friends. So before we, we even give any sense of meaning to security, we need to know what love means. We need to know what compassion means. We need to know what empathy means, because that's what brings security really into focus for us. So in that sense, of course, politicians are going to the war metaphor, talking about security. What we need to be talking about much more richly is what does community now mean in the 21st century? Now we face these kind of crises and to take seriously an idea of a politics of love, because that's what's been completely missing from the world up until now. Thank you. The um, one of the, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the sort of heartening, spontaneous community actions that are emerging, people taking meds to vulnerable neighbours and making sure that people have got food in their community. These kind of, these principles of self-organization are being deployed and you know these are grassroots movements not um directed by uh, certainly not by the state and and i don't even think by any kind of big charity organizations i'm sure there are things but but what sort of strikes me as interesting is the way that people are uh, intuitively mobilizing you said earlier about like you know that crisis reveals what's already broken and I think it's for me has been interesting to see how many of the things that we take for granted are in fact cons conceptual, held together by faith-based structures, whether that's sort of our entire national economies or you know significant transnational enterprises like airlines, that everything is sort of that these houses are all made of straw that once you stop, investing that if the economy slows down it can't be sustained or withstood or withstood or a crisis cannot be withstood precisely because of the revelation of a kind of detachment and so there's not like when you talk about politics of love what i feel like is you know that's the, the way that that's critiqued is always as if it's mawkish sentimental um kind of unintellectual but actually it's this as you say it's kind of the deepest reality we experience how do you uh, one of the things i'm curious about brad is how people will you know in 
12 weeks or 16 weeks you know assuming that this is successfully managed in spite of the obvious sort of tragedy and disruption that it's causing do you think that people are gonna just willingly go back to their jobs or can you envisage a kind of geological stratification like this point of time is running through all of our consciousness this moment when we all stopped working all stopped consuming all stopped traveling you know do can you see that a, a further positive impact emerging well, I, I think that the geological will certainly be out of our control in the sense that we have to insist upon governments that this doesn't actually create permanent isolation, permanent planetary. Because the one thing actually that you know the virus has shown is that borders actually really don't matter. Now, you know, populations for us, we can kind of say, well, okay, we need these temporary lockdowns. But what we surely need going forward actually is the opening up of all borders because to, to combat these kind of viruses we need truly global cooperation you know these kind of issues we affect us all and we need to have a much more rigorous understanding where i do think we might have a you know a, a hope a more profound shift is in the ecological conditions of life you know we we're all now living in what we might effectively call a climate of fear a climate of anxiety a climate of insecurity and those ecological conditions of life how we make sense of the atmospheres in which we are now living in how we look forward in 12 weeks time you know there is a danger that that, that atmosphere could become very toxic we could be looking for blame we could be looking for scapegoats we could be looking for Whereas actually, if we kept hold of how we're feeling now, and we talk about, you know, you say this this kind of idea of the politics of love as being very sentimental. There's nothing sentimental about the current condition in which we're living, you know. And what we are seeing is people actually recognizing this is really where we're at. And I think this is perhaps part of the surrealism of it as well, because I often find myself watching the news and it's kind of, I don't know how healthy this is sometimes to watch the 24 hour news coverage, right? Because you yourself become more and more, you see the news presenters are equally trying to just grapple with what the hell's going on without any answers. And they're looking just as worried as anybody else. You know, often the news reporters are meant to reassure you the things that are actually not so bad, right? But you see in their faces, they're looking more and more anxious, more insecure about things. And the thing that I find surreal is like, I've almost seen this before, but it's been on Hollywood. <laughs> you know, we've seen this kind, we've lived this reality before in a simulacrum, or Baudrillard would call a simulacrum, but now we're actually living it and we know it's real and we know it's certain. And how we can mobilize that going forward, I think, will be absolutely crucial to preventing not only these kinds of you know, outbreaks happening again, because they might happen again, but how we respond to them better, but to ensure that the world doesn't become more fragmented as a result of it. And I think that's the real danger. Well, one question I've been thinking about is the um, balance between centralized power and the, the necessity for there to be centralized response. It seems like in medicine, uh, the judiciary, I don't know, law and order, and the sort of absence of community that has preceded this crisis and the in a, the the sort of long-term castration of most of us, you know, the lack of civic life, the, you know, like um, I've, that Hannah Arendt quote that in the sort of post-Enlightenment thinking led to the end of civil d discourse and that we're now, whilst we may 
be we appear together in public we're just sort of living our private lives in public there's no sense that we're holding communities together that we're engaged in the sustenance and survival of our group community or tribe um i i'm interested in you know people when i talk about like anarcho-syndicalism we should live more tribally we should live in groups of 150 that are completely democratic and self-governing a kind of confederacy and people say no there needs to be more centralization so that you can respond to a crisis of this nature where do you fall in that debate and what complexities are there that i'm missing well i think centralization of power is never a good thing um, I think what matters more, as you, you actually uh, rightly point out, I think, Russell, is, is what type of communities and cultures are produced through the organization of certain regimes of power. Now, what I mean by that, of course, we, we know across the world that sometimes some of the most vibrantly caring and rich social communities registered as the poorest economically. People still look out for one another. People still care for one another. It's what um, the, um, the critical development theorist Mark Duffield has called actually existing development. Right. So people still actually care for one another despite the hardship because they know they can rely on one another. Now, one thing we've found, and there's been many studies done about the ways in which our capitalist individualist societies have destroyed notions of community. And maybe this is the one of the realizations which is now biting us back. It's kind of saying, you know, because you know, there was I was watching the news earlier and there was this, you know, this old lady chatting on there and saying her biggest fear is dying alone. And this idea of dying alone, but we have, you know, created societies which are premised on notions of alienation, based on individualization, based on I'll be okay, Jack, right? You know, but because I'm in a competition and I need to look after myself. And in that sense, I think what this kind of is revealing is how much we are at just the very basic level of the human condition so dependent on one another that we cannot live as an island. And we have to kind of, you know, recognize this. And that has to be perhaps the, you know, the stark lesson. It's almost like a crash course for us now in the need for community. And I think that is, you know, it shouldn't be a revelation to us, but it is a revelation that we're having to encounter once again. It's a firm anthropological slap that we've received, a kind of stark reminder that we've embedded ourselves in these individualized systems when for hundreds of thousands and in some form millions of years we've lived as tribal communal animals and now in our pristine cells of comfort wherever we fall on the social spectrum perhaps there are nasty little cells of discomfort if we're economically underserved now what do we do when the rules change i'm i wonder brad i speculate sometimes on what uh you know when a decision's made for example i was talking to a friend who like because of course we're all experts in coronavirus now i was talking to i was talking to a friend and he said uh, he said that um it was interesting that boris johnson recommended that small businesses restaurants etc closed rather than mandated that they closed if they closed they would be able to claim insurance if they don't do that, they you know if it's not mandated, they can't claim insurance, and that's sort of a, another indication of the the attitude that underwrites policy. You know, it, there there is more revelation there about who is being served, and that of course in this crisis, the conservation of the system itself will be a priority. I wonder what kind of concerns there are of civil unrest. I wonder what kind of concerns there are about. Um, 
about people utilizing this uh, crisis as an opportunity to bring about social change to present new ideas to s- confront people with well look at your reality look at your re- look at how we were living the, the the sort of the drudgery of what um your mate paul calls uh, like lanyard slavery or whatever like indentured land lanyard servants people just in and out of city office blocks you know like uh, it's for me, it's of course there are beautiful things. The, the community spirit is revealed, and our care for one another and our love for one another. But also, there's something is I feel being taught about the essential nature of our systems and what is prioritised. And uh, I suppose I'm asking: Do you, do you, do you, not getting into conspiracy territory? But how, do you imagine that there are quite fearful conversations taking place in high levels of government about that the, the, this could be sort of a pivotal point for civil unrest and change? Well, I think that, so. Two points on there, Russell. I think the the first point actually you make, and I think we shouldn't actually get away from this. Actually, first of all, is insurance, right? Because I think one of the clearest um, mechanisms for what does it what does it mean to be secure in our current system? Well, it means to have insurance, right? The, the ability to so-called bounce back from catastrophes and crisis. But we know the most vulnerable people who are prone to catastrophe and crisis can never get the premiums they need, right? So, so, so that is the irony of you know those who can afford it can pay for the insurance, even though they're less likely to ever succumb to the types of catastrophes. And I think so that in itself there's a there's a clearly hidden politics even to the very idea of insurance. And that shows how economized our understanding of security clearly is, right? Now in terms of the civil unrest question, again I think we need to look, you know, one of the things which has been very striking it has been the remarkable dignity which a lot of people have been showing. You know, there's the, there's the panic buy-in stuff and you can say, okay, there's there's something which is complete, completely not right about that. But I think some of the panic buy-in is understandable just because of the way in which the government has been badly managing the, you know, even the public announcements in terms of, so some of that panic buy-in is, it's easier to deride people who panic buy, but, you know, people are really deeply concerned. So, okay, we can understand some of the logics of that, even if we don't agree with it. To me, if we look historically, however, like, for instance, if you look um, in a recent case in a few years back in Haiti, when there was the, you know, the major disaster there, there was only genuine civil unrest in Haiti after they militarized the streets. So it's almost like by militarizing the streets, you invite a counter protest because people then go from feeling like I'm going to self-isolate because there's a catastrophe going on to now feeling actually I'm now living in a military state. And I think the danger for civil unrest and protest will come in the real face of physical symbols of violence on the street, which is militarization. And I think that's where then there might be a danger that people will start to realize there's something more at work politically here, and we are simply not happy with this. And I think that's where there might be a danger in the kind of dynamic taking place there. That's interesting. What else from your extensive studies into violence of different forms can you draw upon? And I thought that was fascinating what you just said there about the militarization of streets sort of will be seen as a kind of a provocation and a, and, a, and a further revelation. Is there anything else about violence that's uh, emerging? Mm-hmm. 
Well, again, you know, I've been talking extensively with, you know, various academics on this, and I do think there's some interesting parallels, actually, with 9-11 and what happens with 9-11. Now, one of the things, you you know, many New Yorkers would testify was just after the violence of 9-11, there was a remarkable sense of community in New York. You know, people were suddenly talking to their neighbours. And actually, the calls for retribution wasn't coming from New Yorkers. It was coming from elsewhere, That you know, that there needs to kind of be this response. Now, I, I do know, for instance, you know, like Simon Critchley said, you know, if 9-11 was such a profound moment in the history of the human condition, as Tony Blair said, you know, the day the world changed forever, then we should have spent more time thinking about it. The one thing we do have today is the time to think. We have, you know, we're all in this state of lockdown. So let's use this condition wisely and make sure that it doesn't become a force that could bring about further militarization, further violence in its name. We do have the luxury of time now, even though that time can feel oppressive to us. And I think how we use that time and if we use it wisely should be, you know, on all our minds. So, so in that sense, I think that, you know, the lessons about the history of violence are very clear to us. If we militarize, often that will bring about a violent response. What we need to recognize is that people are feeling anxious, they're feeling insecure. If there is a protest over food, then why is that the case, right? What, how can we ensure that these things don't happen? And then we can start having a much more meaning civilized discussion around where we go forward from it. There's a sense I have, Brad, that that you know the, the, the sort of I suppose difficult is difficult for anyone to speculate with any real veracity. Perhaps that's the nature of speculation generally, but certainly in a situation as unprecedented as this one. But my feeling is that you know at some point normal business will resume or a kind of normal business, and I I feel that. You know, I feel like uh, I don't want to miss the opportunity of this time. You know, when you say that we're, we're suddenly given this the chance to reflect and think and see what's important to us, a great leveler has come from the invisible microbiological world, something that sort of has changed, like all of these things that we thought were impossible, reducing the number of flights, reducing the amount of travel, you know, people saying you don't need to pay your mortgage for three months or six months, you know, like all these radical changes are taking places it's been it's like a a revolutionary force has been unleashed in a kind of viral format and um and like of course it's like it's very easy in in a culture like ours built on gossip social media and memes to ridicule people for hoarding toilet roll but i know too that people are already observing well we live in a culture where hoarding is commonplace what is profit what is wealth and i was thinking the other day brad i heard something on I can't remember some history of philosophy thing that was saying that, you know, like we, it was a, liber, uh, a libertarian philosopher saying that, you know, we just accept that 30 to 40% of our time is spent working for the government in the, the money that we pay in tax. And then I was wondering, you know, how we would ever understand the further 20 or 30% of our time that's spent so that Jeff Bezos or whoever can accumulate further wealth. You know, like I, I sat and, I thought like that, you know, well, that money, Jeff Bezos didn't suck it out of his own brain. <laughs> That's resources that are being accumulated and aggregated and, and collected. And how long before we think, well, the real problem isn't, you know, we are hoarding toilet roll and hand sanitizer. It's that we have 
created conditions where it's ordinary to have the, the level of inequality and suffering that we've that, you know we just now accept as absolutely normal i want to maybe talk about you know connecting this question of the virus with um what, what you talked about with amazon and i know you also talked about this again in your the first kind of video you put out um one thing that's becoming apparent to us is the ways in which actually we are having to come to terms with invisible forces. So, you know, the invisible force of the virus, but also the invisibility of our systems. And we have this kind of, you know, it's a, it's a complete irony of our times, or you know, a contradiction of our times where we live in an age where, where apparently everything is visible. We broadcast everything. We've never known more about the world and yet the real mechanisms of power down to the very basic levels are hidden from us. This complete invisibility of social order, social power, social wealth, where it goes, where it comes from, social endangerment, which is completely symbolic now in this virus. You know, and I, and I think that that making visible the realm of the invisible to us surely seems like a real purposeful way forward to make better sense of the world in which we are living in. Because it has really shown, actually, that all these kind of systems which we are dependent upon are completely fragile, are completely <clears throat> vulnerable. And I was thinking about, you know, the, um, the late French philosopher Paul Virilio said, we still don't know what a virtual accident looks like. I think this is exposing it. Because, you know, Virilio had this theory that every single technological innovation we have should be defined by its accident. So the plane should be defined by the plane crash. You know, if you build a nuclear bomb, expect it to explode. And he says the same about the Internet. We still don't know what a virtual accident looks like. We're now hitting that head on because our systems of life are premised on the virtual absence of their kind of presence. Right. We don't know about them. We don't structure them in our minds. And yet... They are now crushing before us. And part of our anxiety and frustration is we, ha we have no idea how to deal with it. We don't know where food production comes from. If Sainsbury says my, the food's going to be there tomorrow, I've got no idea whether I can trust it or not because it's all virtual to me. It's all abstract to me. And I think that's what you're right. It's the abstract is completely crushing before our feet, but it's leaving us with no answers, no knowledge, no understanding. And this is the complete contradiction. And in a world full of knowledge, it's showing we know nothing. And I think that's a real kind of, you know, a real source of anxiety for many people. Yes, we've been lacquered with layer after layer of obfuscation. Perhaps from agriculture onwards, we become more and more remote from our own reality and our own nature. And it seems to me interesting, too, that this was, has been preceded by such extreme ecological concern and one of the sort of more obvious and more observed positives that's emerged from um, this crisis has been oh wow look emissions have been reduced and pollution is falling in these areas and above these cities and I sense that it's as you say Brad we've become so accustomed in like living in conceptual systems and constructed systems we're not living lives where we're this is our community of 100 people my role within this community is this i do this i have these are the, this is the way i get food this is where the food comes from i we make it here this is how i'm involved we've become entirely absent from 
our own existence. And I don't think that this is a me speaking, although of course, how would I know, entirely from a position of privilege where I, you know, I consume products in a particular way. I remember from when I was poor, you know, I had no idea where I was getting pot noodle from or cans of tuna or whatever it was. I was surviving then. I was absented from my own life. There is this kind of rupture. You know, and the sort of uh, spiritual philosopher Eckhart Tolle said to me recently, you cannot be ever be content in the conceptual mind, in the mind of comparison. Unless we fully appreciate the aliveness of the exact moment we're in, we will always be suffering to some degree. And I have this feeling that that there is a as you said in that this you know from your perspective as a philosopher that you know it presents you with a time to you know to think and reflect and that is obviously essential to your identity and essential to your nature and i think that for all of us there's a sort of a opportunity for our real nature to not emerge but at least to somehow be witnessed now i i am quick to point out that i'm aware that for some people it's going to be in the face of very direct suffering for a great many people it's going to be in the face of economic suffering and real fear and isolation and frustration but i still what i feel the, the thing that i've i'm most curious about and very unsure how to handle personally is that we are being presented with a chance to review the validity of our systems and the values particularly the values that are not our own uh, uh, under which we abide yeah and I don't think, you know, any of this has to be profoundly philosophical, right? The, the, you know, for me, that some of the, the most remarkable changes are becoming very... Well, you've got a funny way of showing it, mate. You've done nothing but philosophize from the minute you got on the phone, from when I first met you, when I, was, I seem to remember literally reading your papers in a philosophy class. But, but carry on. It doesn't need to be philosophical. Tell us, Brad. Well, sometimes, put it in another way, then maybe some of the most profound philosophical changes will be the most simple, right? So, so in that sense, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about over, you know, just very basically over the last couple of days is like, well, hang about, this virus begins in a food market, in a meat market. Maybe there's something in this veganism stuff, right? You know, <laughs> when I'm actually, you know, kind of been re completely reassessing my own kind of eating habits and kind of going, well, actually, you know, I've kind of toyed with it for a few times, understanding the history of animal cruelty and thought, well, actually, maybe this is what's needed. And even the sense that we talk about, about, you know, people just caring for their neighbors, caring for communities, you know, to me, they are very, the, the, the real tragedy is why is that now seen as a real radical political act when it should be very self-evident to what humans do? So I think it's more of a damning indictment of the way our societies are. But it is now seemingly a radical political and philosophical gesture, which should be bloody obvious to us. Of course, we should care for our neighbours. Of course, if there's an elderly person, I live in a block of flats, and if there's an elderly person here who can't go out to get their food, you go and buy it for them, right? Of course, you should be doing that. But we don't ordinarily do it. And I think that is then, you know, so why have we got ourselves into this bloody mess? I think is simple solutions might be the way forward because they might reveal the most lasting political effects on this. How is it affecting your life right now? Are you lecturing? Are you writing? Are you seeing your family? What's happening? First of all, in terms of family, there's um, some, my father's and ticks all the high category 
risk boxes. So he's self-isolating and that's obviously a very worry. But you try to kind of communicate through social media as, as best you can. In terms of the teaching, you know, so we've now shifted to online teaching as part of the university sector. And this is, you know, was a, the right move, I think, for the university sector to do. I think that there's a number of challenging issues that I'm finding. I, I, was, I was recording a lecture yesterday and normally my lectures will take like an hour and 20 minutes. It took me 30 minutes to record it. And I was kind of going, well, why is this just taking 30 minutes? And I was struggling to kind of make sense of it. I ended up doing four takes of this lecture that I was recording for my students. And I've realized that, you know, whilst technology, like, like this example of having this podcast, right, can be a great enabler, it can make bring people together. There is also no substitute for actual human contact. You know, it's all well and good kind of, I felt like I was just lecturing into the void. I, I was mindful. I even drew an image of smiley faces by the side of me just so I could have some kind of visible connection to something which was absent. Well, like Tom Hanks on that island with Wilson, you drew a smiley face so that you could feel some human contact. That's so lovely to think of you, this brilliant man, this great professor and wonderful thinker, reduced to drawing smiley faces on the back of a poster to get you for a lecture. I mean, yeah, it's I, I know what you're saying, man, to sort of be stripped of those norms like you know i've been at the, where i am currently i've still been able to sort of go out from time to time and like i'm like some people you know like because it seems like you know i know there's not one narrative i know you would never let me get away with a statement like this because that's a, the imposition of power above, above all impositions to say there's one narrative but like with coronavirus it seems there's a kind of a line it's like some because i remember when i was like this is just some bullshit man and then like oh what's going on here oh i can use this to get out of work to Oh shit! This is and like some sometimes you meet people that are further behind on the narrative, and they're like, "Don't touch me, you maniac! Turn on your TV! What are you doing?" You know, and like so, I'm having some normal interaction, and it's you recognise how we've become, how primal, how um, tactile we are. We're sort of touching, sort of we're wet, earthy creatures that each other and look at one another and sniff each other and in where i'm staying at the moment there's there's like a fire outside a campfire and like people are just talking this people are socializing not people that we know well the people that we're sort of renting this house off of and like to watch the little performances of people you don't know the sort of sweetness and beauty as someone will tell you a story about like what they were like as a kid or an experience they had falling in love and the gesticulation and i don't mean i'm not talking about great orators or performers i'm talking about the ordinary communication the way we reassure one another as we move through life together which is obviously a frightening experience at the best of times and to see that peeling back is curious huh yeah but i think those as you said the act of communication and the subtle performativity is is absolutely crucial to us in terms of how we think and interact as humans and again in terms of i was thinking about in terms of my lectures you know it's i know in terms of when i'm lecturing the reason why it goes off in so many ways is because you respond to people you respond to the audiences you respond to the students your thought will then you're thinking in unison with people you never think in isolation you never you know, communicate by yourself. And I'm sure you can relate to it much more, you know, what would it be like for you to perform in an empty auditorium, right? It's, you know, you need the audience there. 
the debate on the footballers playing in empty stadiums. You know, you're not going to have no amazing goals scored in an empty stadium, right? You know, you, you need to have that kind of interaction and the subtle performativity because, you know, going back all the way to Aristotle, you know, humans are social animals. And the social brings out the best of us, the best of us in terms of thinking or acting or performing in unison with one another. Without one another, our thoughts just seem banal. Uh, you know, it's, it's like as if I'm talking to myself, but so what? That's just narcissistic. And, and, and I find that then that's the real troubling thing is you do feel like you're being slightly narcissistic by operating in a world talking to yourself. And I think that becomes, you know, because you realize without the other, you have no meaning. You have no purpose. So, Yeah, man. Like something like a football crowd that... Because, like that we sort of regard as a backdrop as they as fans become less relevant to the economic success of the teams they support their rights uh, are, 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 are more and more discarded and diminished but it's yeah there's that i've not i've not watched any of the italian football that got pl played behind closed doors or and and i'm sure the premier league i'm not sure i imagine the premier league will resume but the idea of you know watching liverpool presumably win the title without fans being there is i i've heard it before i think you know maybe when some team was banned for some reason or another i think i've heard the hollow echoey sort of emptiness and you realize you no know, fo football's magical because it's not football football's magic because it is community because suddenly we're all entering into this game willingly accepting that well you can't just pick the ball up and run with it or, or shoot somebody there are we are accepting these conditions but uh, analogous to that is i suppose the way that we sit and accept social games social constructs you know that we could at any point it seems withdraw from aspects of the social contract that are no longer no longer serve us perhaps never served us why are we paying these mortgages why are we paying these taxes why are we bailing out what why are we buying out crashed financial entities and airlines why are these things being held together if they can't even survive and sustain according to the rules of the game that they, that they benefit from most what you know that it's very interesting to feel the significance of all of us when so many people are sort of regarded as background artists, extras, just sort of chunder to be sort of used by the, you know, the central power. Well, I think what's also really coming into focus, Russell, is this, you know, OK, what do we value? And, and again, you know, I'm going back to the, the football analogy, you know, it's, again, it can kind of seem a bit banal talking about football now, but I think we know the social history, the theory of, so, of social movements of, of, of crowds, studied the history of football as you know, a very viable area of studying crowd behavior and the way in which crowds interact with one another. But, you know, in your, again, in your first video, when you mentioned Klopp, you know, what a wonderful example of, you know, this idea of what do we value in society? Well, okay, you know, we know for football, it's a lot, it's very important, especially for Liverpool fans, right? Who've gone through this complete tumultuous mill of, you know, the history of the club and particularly the history of tragedy. We know what it, this means to the club. And yet for him to come out and say, look, it really isn't that important. If one single person survives and we don't win a title, that's much more important. That re-articulation of the value of our society, I think, is just a remarkable ethical moment, actually. And if only yeah. our leaders showed, as you say, that, that kind of leadership, 
we would certainly be in a much better place today because it, and this is what perhaps where there might be a real transformative moment where we're in. If, if we're talking about, you know, what Nietzsche calls the, the transvaluation, you know, is how do we understand the transvaluation of our values? What emerges out of this in terms of what we truly value in society? The things which we, you know, we displace the prizes with a human life, that certainly is a way forward for our ethics. It's not about lifting the golden prize, but just valuing human life. That trade-off there in itself is the most remarkable ethical move, that I think, which is a wonderful example. Yes, it was a very impactful thing to say. And as you say, as you point out, an indication of his intrinsic values, like Jurgen Klopp is a man for whom it is safe to be authentic he could trust himself he has integrity so he can sort of he doesn't need to go through presumably layers and layers of pr oh no what about devoted liverpool fans who think this is the opportunity to finally you know he's not thinking that he's got almost as yeah like a window into a truth that it's quite arresting um but perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that these are not values exhibited by people in positions of political authority because of the values demanded of them to even get into that position and the 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 rules of the game that they're playing when i was like you know you know i've spoken to you this about this at some length before like you know involved in politics through like doing you know only tangentially but through making those videos and it got pretty tasty for a while around the time i interviewed the then labor leader ed miliband uh, like I, I, it was felt like a real crisis when that sort of stuff fell apart. I felt like I was the focus of a lot of negative attention. It was very like a sort of aggressive and at points kind of frightening and certainly dispiriting, you know. And anyway, I spoke to her again and as a friend of mine who's a, a monk, a Swami, in fact, and he said like he told a beautiful story from the Bhagavad Gita about an elephant bathing in some sort of space in the off the Ganges or whatever with his elephant wives and being fought by a crocodile under the water and it becomes sort of this whole thing grows into an encounter encounter with Vishnu and he used this very beautiful piece of sort of scripture to illustrate the simple point that if you're going to fight with crocodiles don't fight them in war. <laughs> like, like, you know, like an, for like me being engaged with politicians, me with my perspectives and my values, you know, which of course range from egotism and narcissism right the way to almost saintly philanthropy. Like, uh, like you know, like I'm going to get undone if I get involved in that. Because obviously, I guess at a time like this, I start to think about those times again. I start to think about, well, this is an opportunity. People are going to get galvanized. People are going to be interested in different kinds of organizing power and communities in different ways. And I can see that you know what we're discussing and what is emerging is the possibility for it to be more participatory, more equal, more connected to nature, both inner and outer nature. And... That aspect of it, even adorned as it is with terrible death and personal fear for all of us, and sadness and grief, like you know, does seem at least somewhat heartening. Well, the two phrases you use there, Russell, in terms of you know, first of all, authentic voice and participatory. Like if we could bring those two things together, the one thing we should demand of our politicians is authenticity. Right, to speak with an authentic voice. 
but they don't, right? And yeah. it, it, it comes down to something when a football manager whose entire life is dependent upon winning or losing speaks authentically, and yet politicians don't, right? Because our politics is all about winners and losers. And I think that in itself is the fundamental crux. You look at the British system more than anything, we have what's called adversarial politics. You know, the government and the opposition, it's winners and losers, right? And that system in itself just creates this dynamism, which is completely about if we win, you lose. Look at Brexit, look at all these kind of these narratives around politics, right? Now, what might a more participatory politics look like? Well, it has to be based on a more reciprocal, ethical, mutual understanding, but also has to be driven by authenticity. The trouble is, even in this time of crisis, I look at Johnson, I look at Trump, I simply don't think they're telling me the truth. I don't <laughs> think they're telling, you know, even now you think, well, just at least be slightly honest with us now. I just know that they're looking for an angle that, you know, Trump is looking to make more money in some way or another, you know. He's looking after his constituencies and how we then understand that, you know, that authenticity, that truth. Now, but on, on to the question of grief. I, I, I you know, I, um, I was reading this, this article on um, Bloomberg this morning and it was talking about the actual breakdown of the, of the people who were dying in Italy. And it was, again, part of this kind of narrative, almost like, well, 99% of the people who die already have an underlying medical condition, most of them over the age of 80, so on and so forth, right? It's almost like, well, don't really worry because you're not the vulnerable here, right? And I can understand what they're trying to do. This It's a nice kind of public service in terms of saying, well, look, you know, let's have a healthy perspective on the health of this. But surely that should galvanize us more to think more about the provision of healthcare for the truly vulnerable. Rather than using it as an opportunity to celebrate our health, then let's look at who we're grieving over. You know, let's look at the people who are now vulnerable. Because this is bringing it very clearly to the focus in terms of the poverty of healthcare provision, the poverty, the way in which we deal with elders in our society. You know, the way in which they are just yeah. basically almost like a disposable class, except when a time of an election comes. You know, how we deal mm -hmm. with the elderly in society because they have no longer an economic value because they're no longer productive. You know, yeah. th that, that's where, you know, if we are going to have a also much more engaged conversation about participation, about history, then surely we need to, you know, see them as also active political agents in a society which are perhaps the wisest amongst us. And I think how we engage in those conversations moving forward will also be something which I think we need to really consider. It reveals, doesn't it, Brad, that we that, or that systemically we prize utility above all else, like whether it's, you know, the, the sort of celebration of statistics. Hey, it's only the vulnerable. And it turns out the vulnerable hardly ever earned anything. Fuck those guys. And or, or the elderly or a crisis like homelessness, a more, uh, you know, sort of a permanent crisis, it seems at least now. Um you know the, the the well these people can't participate in the, the in this economic system so it's okay for them to be excluded from its spoils if you can't earn money don't be mentally ill or an addict or whatever it is whatever sad story it's led to this you know visible despair um i and and yes that does that does that reveals a lot about our values i also was very struck Brad by what you said about the theatrics of uh 
of oppositional adversarial politics that it's almost like we prize the spectacle rather than the function and, and I, I call upon what you just taught me there about Nietzsche and trans values like what like a, or a trans valuation you'll have to tell me about that again in a minute so that I'll say it correctly and next time I'm trying to impress someone saying it um like that like um you know that we obviously it's more important that the politics looks interesting and i do you know when you said it i realized that i've sometimes maybe looked at sort of tv footage of like parliament in denmark or finland and thought this is fucking boring <laughs> why, why are they? and like in russia when they have an actual fight like someone comes and punches someone think this is good this is good it's like we're pr prizing i'm personally prizing entertainment and dynamism over the function of government which is to manage society to manage our resources to create fair just societies which i think you know and have thought for a long while cannot be achieved at this level in this manner in this fashion and that's what my sort of early intervention into the political discourse was based on this whole thing's bullshit what's the point in participating in it in any way at all furthermore uh, to your point on integrity and authenticity one simply can't imagine Jurgen Klopp behind the scenes going I'm gonna say this thing right that the title's not important because it's gonna play really well he just meant that whereas as you say with Johnson and Trump you know those guys you know because of the nature of their position not because of some inner malevolence and i recently heard someone say you know that when we all have contempt for one another when we have contempt for our opponents if we feel contemptuous to even towards trump or boris johnson or whoever that we're entering into this sort of uh, this antipathy and this sort of fatigue with compassion and a kind of sense of i don't know togetherness or forgiveness or values that i hold quite dearly when i bloody remember to you know but re regardless you know that them they are having conversation like you know they're, they're having conversations because politics demands it or, or like along the lines of right this is what we really believe and this is what we can say publicly this is what we're really going to do but this is how we're going to reveal it this is the what this is the public facing aspect of what we do you know they can't say boris johnson can't say i'm getting lobbied by great ins you know powerful insurance interests therefore let me word this very carefully if you want to shut your pub or bar or theater or club you can but let me tell you it ain't fucking insured because guess who i work for you know like these things there is a masquerade there is a you know the theater is a integral aspect of governance it seems yeah the the theatrical the theatrical nature also is well rehearsed now it's it's part of the elite public school tradition it's almost like a boys club where you know these boys you know will rehearse their debating clubs right they have these from a very young age you know mastering the art of debate and then to prove who's the better debater and who can but it's almost like as if the effects of these debates have no consequence right it's like as if, <laughs> well yeah i've won this argument right without actually recognizing the social impact of, of those debates and the consequences and i think so we you know what we need to recognize then that this you know this performativity of adversarial politics doesn't just fall from the skies it's coded and it's culturally coded and it has a history and it has a history bound up with elite institutions and i think so to recognize that in itself is you know, takes us much back further into the history of the way in which politics has turned out the way it has. Now, in terms of the statistics, I think you're right in terms of um, we live in an era where there's the tyranny of statistics. And this is very clear in terms of what's happening now. 
I'm looking at the news every day and, and it's saying like like this morning, another 120 people died, another 130 people died. Okay, there's the statistics, there's more and more statistics. But who are these people? Right? <laughs> what what lives did they live? Are we just reducing them now to a statistic? You know, what what was their biographies? Why, you know, I'm sure if somebody very famous dies, we'll learn, you will know, know about it and we will know it all over the newspapers. But why are these people's lives less significant? Why are we not talking about their biographical details? Who is it who's dying? What did they do with their life? You know, not having to completely transform the world, but certainly their life stories shouldn't just simply be forgotten. So, so in that sense, there's that politics to grief, which I think also that we can, how we respond to it just by reducing it to a statistic is also part of the dehumanization process, actually. That we're stripping away their life. We're stripping away something meaningful from them. Yeah, every morning I've been checking it like it's a football score. Like, all right, 78,000 are cured, right, 200,000 worldwide dead. Um, I mean, uh, sort of infected. Yeah, a friend of mine died recently of cancer, actually. And like, even when I read his obituary, it's, um, you know, perfectly nice obituary. It's not a criticism of the obituary, but it's such a flattening of a, when it's someone you know to just read. He did this, 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 and this, and this. He leaves for the people he loved. This is what he left behind. Ta-da. Like, oh, my God. You know, so when it's further reduced to just a sort of a ticker tape number clicking up, you feel like, yeah, like you're right. It's part of the dehumanization in the same way that the military, like the, the war metaphor linguistically precedes militarization on the streets. And I, I don't know if it's just because I'm from uh, the United Kingdom, but I regard that country as interesting. And I w- wouldn't be surprised if there was some some civil unrest around it you know it's not that long ago that there was the you know like what are people going to do how are people going to be affected by this how is this going to you know how are these long-held feelings of alienation the social fragmentation that was has been fostered in the preceding four-year argument about brexit we're going we're to just put this together because there's been a couple of bloody sort of pseudo churchillian rants and we're all going to like you know get all vera lynn about it I don't think so. Like, this is like this is a system that's on the brink anyway. Mm-hmm. But I, I I do think this you know your point about um, the compassion fatigue I don't buy at all. It's it's when you know it's when people say that you know people have again you see this and people they talk about violence they say people are desensitized to exposure to violence. That's not my experience at all. When people actually see something horrific, they find it fucking horrific right yeah and 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 i think the same actually then with this idea of compassion fatigue well you know i'm talking to my again you know deeply frustrated in talking to my parents through social you know these kind of you know technological machines at the minute i'm not going to be fatigued by talking about them worrying about their concerns i'm going to be fatigued (laughs) about not being able to actually physically see them and hug them and make sure they're okay you know that's where my fatigue might come in but the fatigue has nothing to do with how I feel compassionately about people. That to me is just based on a very certain narrow idea of behavioral science, which is completely nihilistic, that believes that we're all out for ourselves, that we're all individuals. But I think you're right, there is a danger, unless this is managed ethically, that people's very real fears are not dealt with, that there's not the level, the expected humane response to this then people will take things into their own hands. And I think that's where a danger becomes there. Now, I'm not saying there is not a small minority of people who are not going to capitalize on this. Most of them work in Wall Street, 
right? But but we have to understand that there is a you know a sense in which we have to kind of make people feel like, look, we will get through this. We're going to be okay, mm. right? Or if we don't, then at least we are there for each other. And I think unless we do that, then the chance of unrest is very real. And of course, we have to be very mindful also to the ways in which certain leaders will become parasitic to this. We'll use it in a way, as I say, to stoke fear, to stoke division. Trump's invocation now about the Chinese virus, right? You know, we can see this becoming already politicized in the language and the discourse plays, as you say, into the war metaphor, which would have the most pernicious impacts in playgrounds around the world, right? Young Chinese children in schools now, you know, I saw somebody tweeting yesterday saying, you know, they're about his children were now being called the Corona kids in school. He was a Chinese person who tweeted this, you know. So those are the impacts. Those are the ethical problems that we need to be very, very alert to. Amazing. Brad, we've been talking for an hour and I know that both of us are capable of spilling out language when required. It's so wonderful to see you there. It's so lovely to speak with you and it's wonderful to get your insights and always unique, cogent, coherent and a surprising perspective on, on something that's so, you know, literally globally immersive. I'm very grateful to you, Brad. Thanks, mate. No, it's my pleasure to talk to you as always, mate. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Brad Evans. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com to be told first about the other countries I'll be touring in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's likely to happen. This could do with a little editorial, I fancy. Uh, in the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. There's, have a listen to some of Brad's and Adam Curtis. Oh, yeah, I need to reach out to him. And keep checking YouTube for uh, new videos. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.